2: Hey everybody, this is the latest edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipeline's Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. The prospect rankings roll along. We did pitchers and catchers last week. The top tens are out for the rest of the diamond at this point. So we'll go through those all leading up to the top 100 prospects, which is not yet out but maybe by the time you listen to this podcast, eight o'clock Eastern time on Saturday night on MLB network, Jim and Jonathan will be part of the show as they go through the top 100. It also would be big on Twitter as well. Um, some of the prospects following along. So, It's always a lot of fun at this point in the year when we get to see the new batch of top 100 prospects. So we're going to get into that a lot. It's also Hall of Fame announcement week. So we wanted to touch on that, too. Uh, A great class was announced on Tuesday. They were in New York City on Wednesday. Um, So we want to talk about them from a prospect perspective as well. Let's start there, guys, and then get back into the top uh, 10 list after that. So Mariana Rivera. First-ever unanimous choice for the Hall of Fame. Then you have Edgar Martinez, Mike Mussina, and Roy Halladay. Martinez and Mussina certainly waited their time. Edgar, his final year of eligibility, he gets in. Mussina in his sixth year. Halladay, like Rivera, on the first ballot, but not unanimous. Um, It's a good class, certainly. Um, It's another big class, which is nice to see as we try to kind of get out from under the, uh, the backlog that we had going for the Hall of Fame. Jim, I'll start with you on this. We'll go through these guys from a from a uh, back on their prospect days perspective. Musina and Halliday were both first rounders, uh, and Musina flew through the minors, right? One year in the minors, basically, and he was up with the Orioles, and the rest is history.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, with Musina, it's interesting because you know, last year, or I guess it was two years ago, I did a story on like who was the best high school. You know, right hander of all time, kind of with Hunter Green at the forefront uh, of that 2017 draft. I and mean, it was one of those guys. I mean, if he would have signed out of high school, he might have gone 1-1 in 1987. Um, he would have set a bonus record. But he wanted to go to Stanford, and it was interesting because when he went to Stanford, he was you know he helped win a, a College World Series as a as a freshman. But as a junior, it seemed like his stuff was down a little bit. And I don't know if it was the old prospect fatigue that kind of was in there, too. You know, he, he only struck out 111 in 149 innings, more hits than in innings. Um, and, you know, he, was, he didn't have quite the same cachet. And, in fact, uh, I, I promise I'll keep this brief. The last two games he pitched in college were against my alma mater and actually a bunch of guys I'd gone to school with because I'd just graduated. And a guy named Mike Reben, for Georgia, who never played professional baseball, beat him twice at the College World Series. Um, But, you know, it's kind of crazy to think that he lasted till the 20th pick, given that he was considered a very polished guy. And then when he got to the minors, he was kind of that guy again. Like you said, Tim, I mean, he came out in 1990 after pitching a bunch of innings at Stanford. He he made nine starts. He pitched 55. He probably pitched 200 innings total in 1990, had a sub-2 ERA, and then he spent about half a season in AAA the next year uh, dominated and went to Baltimore and had a sub three RA and, and it was basically Mike Bucina. So I mean, he, he never really struggled in, in pro ball. Um, you know, he began his pro career in double A um, and he was that guy again. So that was one where I think teams outsmarted themselves a little bit on Bucina, letting him drop to 20 and, and regretted it. Like a year later, they already realized that was a mistake. And this guy was, I don't know if anybody's put him in the hall of fame right away, but they realized this guy was going to be pretty special.
2: Yeah, and he he was quickly up, and and the rest is history. Uh, Ten years with the Orioles, eight years with the Yankees, and he was clear uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday that he's really having a hard time as far as picking which team he wants on his hat, and I think he may end up not having either so that he doesn't have to decide between those two franchises. Similar situation for Halliday. Obviously, it's sad that Roy Halliday no longer with us, um And his family will have to make that decision as far as the Blue Jays or the Phillies go. But Halliday, another first-round pick, Jonathan, in 1995. He had a more traditional route to the majors, though. It took him three years, which is about normal. And then he was quickly one of the best pitchers in baseball once he got to the bigs.
1: Well, he was good. I mean, he was. And then, we you recall, he sort of fell apart and had to kind of recreate himself. Uh, and that's been well-documented in terms of him going back down to the minors and kind of stripping himself down and building himself back up as a pitcher. Um, and then he got there and then was the, the Roy Halladay that uh, that we saw dominate uh, in the big leagues for, for a number of years. And, uh, one of the things that he is that is kind of, we don't see too many of this, but high school pitchers out of Colorado have not necessarily fared all that well. It's, it's kind of hard to evaluate them. They don't get out. Uh, they're not able to pitch all that much, Um, but he uh, he has sort of bucked that trend and obviously went on to to win multiple Cy Young Awards, a ton of all-star appearances, Um, you you know, this was a guy who was really, really good for for a very long time. And, uh, you know, the fact that he made it to the big leagues, three years is a normal amount of time, but for a guy from a cold weather state, to to make it up that quickly uh, is is pretty impressive because sometimes it can take those guys a little bit longer just because they haven't faced that kind of competition or been able to throw as much as some guys in, say, California or Florida. Martinez and Rivera were both
2: free agents, obviously, on the international market. Interesting that they were both signed by the teams that they would spend their entire careers with, which is pretty cool and something that we see less and less of. I'll start with Mo. I'll go back to you, Jim. Signed with the Yankees, 1990. He spent five years in the minors, which, and he was a little older when he got started in that minor league career. 20 years old. He got to the big leagues when he was 25 years old. All that time in the minors, he, he just stuck with that one pitch. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it was interesting because, I mean, I, I think he signed, if I remember correctly, I think he signed for like $500. It, it, he was not a big bonus guy at all. He, he wasn't a guy, or actually, I actually think it was $2,500, but he, he was athletic. And, you know, I, I think it was the, the ease with which he threw was more impressive than his stuff. I mean, it was not unbelievable stuff by any means. And I actually, this is funny. Back in 93, I think I actually saw him pitch in the minors. I don't remember it at all, which is funny. But in 93, I went to Greensboro when I was a baseball American to go see Derek Jeter, who was in his first full year of pro ball. And uh, my friend and and former college roommate Brooks Melchior was actually the broadcaster for the Charleston River Dogs, So I sat in and did a game with him. And Gene Michael was there. And I think it it was one of – Rivera's first games back he'd had a lot of elbow problems early in his career he'd he missed part of 92 he missed part of 93 I think it was Rivera's first appearance in low class a that year um so the Yankees knew they they kind of had something there I don't think they, they they knew what and he was more of a, a kind of a, a three-pitch starter with a good not great arm and you know you know people I only like really remember I mean, he was a starter his whole minor league career for the most part got to the big leagues as a starter and then his second full year he was a full-time reliever and, and spectacular – or his first full year, he, he was a, full, a reliever and spectacular. And then the second full year, Wetland left. He was a closer, and, and he was a Mo Rivera who dominated people with that cutter. But he – I don't think the cutter was that prevalent. I don't remember when exactly he picked it up, but it wasn't like he was just dominating guys with only a cutter like he did as a closer. He was kind of a three-pitch, you know, solid stuff, good control, good command guy, uh, just a smooth, effortless guy in the minors.
2: I was in the car with the guys on the way over to MLB Network yesterday, and he talked about the fact that even in 1995 when he was in the majors, he was basically just throwing a non-cutter, just a fastball, um, because he hadn't added the cut to it yet. And and he was confident in doing just that. But then, yeah, the cutter came a little bit later. And then he mentioned yesterday that he taught his cutter to Halliday, which was kind of fitting. And that was a pitch that Halliday added later in his career. All right, last guy is Edgar Martinez, who Jonathan – Took a while to get to the big leagues. He ended up playing, um, you know, for a long time once he got there. But he had to wait his chance. Even though late in his minor league career, he he was hitting. I think he hit 350 one year in the minors. Didn't get called up. Then
1: 340. Finally, he he settled in in Seattle. Yeah, he did. Um, and it took him a while. I mean, some of that may have been you know, defensive uh, questions and things like that. There's a reason why he ended up DHing for most of his career. But he always hit um you know that was really not a question i mean he hit 303 in his first full you know full season in 1984 uh in the midwest league so uh he had a 300 average in the minors uh but he had to play a certain amount of time to to get there um but then then once he got there he just kept hitting and hitting and hitting and you know uh you know it's an interesting He's an interesting test case, you know, and I think this Hall of Fame class with, you know, a closer and a getting in is really, really fascinating. But, you know, Martinez was first to third baseman and, uh, and then, you know, they had to figure out uh, how that was going to, to work and he settled in luckily with an American league team and spent his entire year there and, and hit pretty much every year until, until the end, uh, you know, he was still putting up acceptable numbers, not great, the very end, but he was 41 by the time he retired. Yeah, it's amazing, Jonathan. I mean, you. Know who,
0: I was going to say real quick, his career kind of reminds me of Wade Boggs where it just seemed like it took a long time for people to take him seriously, even though he put up great numbers in the minor. I mean, it, I don't know how many Hall of Famers, you know, especially, you know, in the modern uh, minor league era, repeated double A and then repeated triple A, even though he hit 329 and 363 in triple A, and then went back to triple A for a third time before he really got a chance to play. I mean, I, I guess the Mariners were in love with Jim Presley, uh, and, and thank God he finally got his opportunity because, uh, I mean, if he gotten started earlier, he might have had 3,000 hits. He might have had 400 home runs. But, you know, with that kind of path, if he doesn't get off to a good start in Seattle when he finally got a chance to play, you know, maybe he gets buried. So, I mean, credit to him for persevering.
2: Yeah, and, and if he had gotten up earlier and, and started putting up numbers earlier, maybe he wouldn't have had to wait the 10 full years – before getting voted in by the writers. But he got there, and that's all that matters in the end. So uh, congratulations to all four of those Hall of Famers. Everyone has kind of a unique journey through the minor leagues to the big leagues, and certainly the case for those four guys. All right, on to the current minor leaguers who are trying to make their way to the big leagues that's the top 10 positions Uh, we're going to kind of work our way around the horn here guys and touch on each of these top 10 lists that you've put together let's start at first base I'll go through the 10 Peter Alonzo number 1 with the Mets Evan White 2 with the Mariners uh, Nate Lowe 3 with the Rays Brendan McKay 4 with the Rays Brent Rooker 5 with the Twins then Nick Prado of the Royals 6, Tristan Casas with the Red Sox 7, Grant Levine of the Rockies 8, Tyler Nevin 9 and Matt Theis number 10 with the Angels. Uh, The Rays at number three and four, Jim, is that ever going to be an issue or do we think at the end of the day, Brendan McKay is going to end up being more pitcher and there'll be a spot for both of those guys in Tampa Bay.
0: Well, you have DH too. I mean, so, so that's something to keep in mind, but like, I mean, we talked about Brendan McKay, I think last week, uh, I think we touched on this. We talked about the left-hand pitchers, you know, it's a unique you know, deal with him where he's, you know, a guy who could have gone in the top five, you know, as a hitter or a pitcher, first guy since Dave Winfield. We're obligated to mention that every time. But, like, in, his, in terms of developing, they're not going to let, like, one of McKay's talents hold the other back. He's, he's much more advanced right now as a pitcher. He was in his first full pro season. And it's conceivable he could be ready for the big leagues as a pitcher, you know, by the midpoint of this year. And he hit two fourteen last year, albeit with a lot of walks. So... Yeah, uh, you know, I think Lowe's going to get there first as a hitter, and then McKay. If McKay's pitching's ready well before his hitting, then maybe the the hitting will take a back burner. But I mean, I, I think the the it's not worst case scenario. But let's say they were both ready to play for the Rays at the same time in the lineup. You put one of the guys at DH, and even even that, McKay is not. You know, he's definitely going to pitch, so he's never going to be you know in the lineup 150 times a year as a first baseman, you know, you would probably, I would think the plan would be he would pitch and not hit on those days. And I think typically he's had a bullpen day in between starts and he doesn't you know do any hitting that day. So even if, if they were both at the same time, McKay is probably at a max, you know, playing a hundred, 110
2: games as a hitter. If he's going to pitch regularly. John is it, Jonathan, is it safe to say that Peter Alonzo will be the first one of these guys to make it up to the bigs? I think
1: that is a, a safe assumption <laughs> unless for whatever reason they keep him down or he's not ready and there's like an injury in Los Angeles and Matt Dice gets called up. I mean, he's the only other one who, you know, I think is ready. Lowe will be ready. Uh, you know, I think also. So, um, you know, that would be the only way, but yeah, I, a, is is not only number one, but the the first guy to, uh, you know, I, I think to to make a a a big impact on, on a big league lineup.
2: Yeah, a lot of these guys are down the road a little bit. Cassis and Levine, you guys have listed as twenty twenty two guys. Uh, Prado. 2021 so some recent draft picks mixed into the list but but certainly some high-end guys that we will see soon and most Mets fans would tell you that Peter Alonso should have already made his big league debut but he will make it soon enough all right on the second base um, we go from one friend of the podcast the number one in Peter Alonso, to another in Keston Hira who's number one at second base with the Brewers followed by Luis Urias who has made his big league debut with the Padres then Nick Madrigal, uh, Vidal Brujan, Garrett Hampson, Jeter Downs, Brandon Lau, Kevin Biggio, Jemai Jones, and Isan Diaz. That's your top 10 as far as second basemen go. And when you look at this list, some more guys that are that are going to be ready sooner, right, Jonathan? I mean, when you look at, at Hura and Urias has already been up and, and Hampson
1: may be ready soon and Lau. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, Hampson, Hampson made his big league debut last year also, and I think he's going to contribute to uh to that big league team even if he moves around the diamond a little bit um i think that uh i think that you know it's interesting to see how many of these guys play multiple positions um there aren't that many guys on the li- on this list who are only second basemen um you know Hiura is one uh, matt uh, i think magical is probably only going to play second base going forward uh brujan only plays played second but you know they're either moving around the infield. Lau and and Biggio and Biggio start playing the outfield in the fall league, um, so uh, Jones and Diaz at the end are second baseman only. So it, it's interesting to see. You know that so much is done with positional flexibility that sometimes it makes it a little tough with these rankings to figure out what their primary position might be. Um, you, you know, but uh, but for all these guys, second bases the the best spot for them. And uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see how quickly Magical can move through the minor leagues just because he's such a good pure hitter with such an advanced approach uh, that I could see him, you know, starting the year in double A, say, and, and moving really quickly.
2: You make a good point as far as the positioning goes as we go through some of these guys. Jim, when we get to shortstop, Carter Keboom's going to be there. I won't give away the whole list, but he's a guy that the clear path to the majors is at second base uh, with the Nationals and and the opening they're going to have in a year once Brian Dozier is a free agent again. Um, So when you put these lists together, is it mainly what they've done at the minor league level? Do you look ahead to what they're going to end up, what the best path for them to the big leagues is? How do you guys kind of, Put all those different ideas together to make these lists and to to put these guys on the right list in your mind. Yeah, you know,
0: I, I don't I don't lose too much sleep over it because guys are going to move around. But the way we do it is from all, I think almost all these guys it's where they played last year. Um, and if you played ten games at a secondary position, we'll list those positions as well. And then you try to mention it in the blur. You know, like I didn't write the Nationals. I'll take a quick peek at Carter Keeboom. Yeah, I mean, we, had, we list him as a shortstop only, but it talks about in the blurb how a move to second base where he played during the Arizona fall league is a possibility. And, you know, a guy like Brendan Rodgers, who Jonathan's doing the Rockies this year, so I didn't write him up. But, you know, he's come up pretty much as a shortstop. You know Trevor's story is pretty good, and you know Johnson mentions in the blurb. You know the Rockies think he could be an above-average defender at second or third. So we don't you don't try to get too specific because a lot of that stuff's fluid. Uh, you know even this year, you know Rogers' opportunity would seem to be at second, but the the Rockies also could play Ryan McMahon at second. They could play Garrett Hampson at second. So we we kind of like I said, we list where they played last year
2: as a guide, but then address where they might wind up in the blurbs. All right, so looking at the second base list, um, which of these guys has kind of the biggest upside, Jim? Do you think?
0: Um, I think that would be Hira.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, you know, I think in most cases, you know, it's not like we we consider floor two, but I think it's Hira. Um, you know, I, I do think this is an interesting list in that you could argue. You know, I, I think – I mean, I would rank Hira as the number one second baseman, but I think you could make a case for Arias and Madrigal, perhaps. Um, you know, you, know not, you can't necessarily make that case at other positions. The number one guy's is a little bit maybe more clear-cut. But, I mean, Hira was the best hitter in his draft. He kind of had a different approach last year in the fall league where he hit for power more than average. So, I mean, I, I think it's a case of kind of figuring out what he wants to do. But, I mean, I think he could win a batting title. I think he could hit 20 home runs. Uh, I just think he's got the highest offensive ceiling. I don't think like there's a like Urias and Madrigal are comparable hitters, but they don't have Hira's pop. You know, especially Madrigal hasn't shown anywhere close to Hero's pop. So for me,
1: it's it, it's Kesten. Yeah, I was gonna jump in uh, quickly. I, I think Hira is is kind of the obvious pick for that, but I, I'm I'm circling Jeter Downs as a guy who might have the highest ceiling that if it if it all clicks, just with, with his age and what he did in his first full season. Of pro ball power and speed. Um, I think there's more to come uh, power wise, uh, especially as he as he figures things out. But uh, he is uh, he is a guy that I think we should we should keep a, a close eye. And I could see him being at the top of this list, uh, unless, of course, he ends up playing shortstop every day.
2: All right, on to third base and thinking back over the last few years, at least, and third base in general, I don't remember ever a deeper group. uh, Ten guys here on this list, and they're all in the top 100. Not to give you details of where they'll rank or anything like that, but know that all ten of these guys are in the top 100, which is impressive for third base. Let's go through it. No surprise at number one. Vlad Guerrero Jr. of the Blue Jays. No real surprise at number two either. Nick Sanzel of the Reds. He's a guy who may end up playing elsewhere, certainly. And then Austin Riley, three of the Braves. Cabrian Hayes of the Pirates, four. The rest of the list. Jonathan India of the Reds. Alec Baum of the Phillies. Nolan Gorman of the Cardinals. Nolan Jones of the Indians. Ryan Mountcastle with the Orioles. And Michael Chavis of the Red Sox. It starts at number one, but I'm going to skip Vlad for a second, Jonathan. I'll go to you. Sure. Vlad's the best prospect right now we have in baseball. No surprise at that. But Nick Senzel, if he hadn't gotten hurt last year and had to deal with what he did, he could have been a very good big league ball player. Um, Talk about him this year and just the versatility that he's going to bring to a Reds team that I think is, is suddenly trying to win now.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, they're going to take a a very nice long look uh, at him Uh, during spring training. he, He's moved around a little bit. Uh, he may break in as an outfielder. Um, you know, we'll have to sort of wait and see what happens. Some of that will be uh, based on, you know, where there's an opportunity for for him to play offensively, uh, even though he's missed considerable time. I think he's shown he's just about ready and, and would be able to, at the very least, sort of hold his own uh until he he took off but you know he can do a little bit of everything he can hit there's some power he can run uh he's athletic enough to play the outfield I I think that'd be fine uh he also could be uh an above average to plus defender at third if that's where he he ends up um so he's fascinating to me and I think he's one of these guys that they're gonna find a way to get his bat in the lineup whether it's a third or second or Outfield. He even played some shortstop, you know, very briefly before the injuries started coming. So we'll have to sort of wait and see what happens with him.
0: I hope whatever they do, Jonathan, they pick a spot for him because you saw the Phillies do this with Kingery last year, and I thought it messed him up. And Senzel's a better prospect, but like, you know, while Nick can play all his positions because of the injuries. He has, doesn't have a lot of experience at any of them except for third. And I, I hope it's not a case where they're shuttling him around to different spots to get his bat in the lineup because he hasn't played a lot of short or second or the outfield. And I think that just I, – I always felt years ago that that contributed to Greg Jeffries not necessarily living up to his promise where the Mets had him learn a new position at the big league level while they were trying to contend. I mean, I, I don't think the Reds are as loaded as those Mets teams were, but I, I hope – that they they take, even though they, they are going to be more respectable this year. I hope they take a long term view in mind and pick a spot for him to play, rather than have him try to figure out how to play all these different positions at once while he's trying to break into the big leagues.
1: I will say that he, you know, he it, it, in instructs he got a lot of reps in the outfield, so, right? But I mean that's like a month. I, I understand, but it, uh, just to separate it from Greg Jeffries, who he was learning it on on the fly, he has gotten some time, and he'll get. Uh, I'm assuming he's you know, knowing Senzel he he may already be in it. He's gonna get a good amount of time uh to to work on it. Uh, then, you know, hopefully that if that's what they're gonna do, then they leave him there. I agree with you, as opposed to having him say, work in the outfield and then suddenly there's a you know, let's say an injury at third and they want him to go back to playing third.
2: All right, Jim, one more question on the third baseman. It's just back to what I said as far as the, the depth of this position right now. Is this as deep a third base crop as you remember in your time covering the minor leagues? Um, You know, I haven't necessarily
0: looked at it from that perspective, but it is pretty deep. I mean, like we, we – it seems like a lot of years we're, we're filling in the list with guys who are on the top 100, and that's not the case. Um, I think the fact that we have, I, Nolan Gorman and Nolan Jones at seven and eight on this list, you know, those guys both could be, you know, I think Jones is a little bit more of a hitter and Gorman's got some of the best power in the minor leagues, uh, You know, know, to have those guys as low on the list as we do is pretty impressive and and, and speaks to the depth on that list. I mean, it it also helps that you have three guys out of last year's draft, first-round picks in India Bomb and Nolan Gorman. And then a guy named Jordan Groshans with with the Blue Jays, who was a first-round pick, who my guess is, as some of these
2: guys graduate this year, that he'll probably be on the list as well. All right, shortstop is always a position loaded with players that some of them end up moving around to other positions, but this is a, another great group of shortstops. As we go through it, Fernando Tatis Jr., number one with the Padres. Royce Lewis of the Twins, two. Brennan Rogers we spoke about, number three. Bo Bichette with the Blue Jays, four. Wander Franco, five. Carter Keyboom six with the Nationals. Andres Jimenez, seven with the Mets. Jazz Chisholm, eight. D-backs, Gavin Lux of the Dodgers, nine, and Luis Garcia of the Nationals is number 10. Um, When you look at this list, Jim, I know some of them could move, but are they all capable of staying at shortstop long-term if that presents itself?
0: Yeah, I think it depends on the opportunity. I mean, Wander Franco might outgrow the position if he gets a little heavier. Um, and his bat's going to play anywhere. But, I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, people were thinking that about Tatis. And, and Tatis plays a really nice shortstop for a guy who's 6'3". You know, Gavin Lux has some inconsistency with his throwing accuracy short. So, some guys think he might wind up at second. But if he could straighten that out, yeah, I mean, it's not impossible that all 10 of these guys would play short. Like you mentioned, a lot of it's dictated by opportunity. Brendan Rodgers, his opportunity in Colorado is not going to be at shortstop. Car Keboom's opportunity is probably not going to be at shortstop. But on the right team? I think all these guys are, are, are capable of playing shortstop. You know, Bichette is probably an average shortstop. I don't know if – I don't have all these grades come into memory yet. He might be our only guy we have as a 50 shortstop. And I think you usually want better than an average shortstop, but the bat's pretty special too. Um, so maybe, you, you know, you, you would take that. But, yeah, all these guys – I mean, there's nobody where you're just saying, ah, this guy's got no shot to play short.
2: Jonathan, when you look at this list as well, um, these are all – or at least the top half of this list – it's not just really good top 10 type guys, top 10 list, but there's some real star power in this group of shortstops.
1: Oh, it's, it's a really good list, especially at the top. Uh, doing a quick scan, by the way, Franco is also a 50 field. Um, uh, to, to answer that question. Um, you know, and some guys have improved Royce Lewis was kind of a 50 field and he, he is. And there were, there was talk about him possibly, you know, needing to move to the outfield and that, that talk is completely ended. Uh, it. It is an, a really impressive all-around group. And uh, we've got Wander Franco at number five. And Wander Franco is usually the guy, whenever we get the question, who might be the top prospect a year or two years from now, uh, he's often the guy that, uh, I know I circled him, I answered an inbox question about two years from now, just because you know, he hasn't a full-season ball yet. He's that good. Um, if you told, you know, told us that, you know, ten years from now or whatever, that he'd be the best of this group. Yeah, sure, I could see that happening. And and the guys ahead of him are really really good. So, it is a it is an impressive all around uh, all around group. Uh, and when you have a guy like Jazz Chisholm at number eight with the upside that he has offensively, um, it's it's a it's a deep
2: list. All right, final position is the outfield, and you guys don't break it down by left field, center field, right field. It's just the top ten outfielders. Let's go through the list. Number one, Aloy Jimenez of the White Sox. Victor Robles of the Nationals, two. Kyle Tucker, three with the Astros. Alex Kirloff of the Twins, four. Joe Adele of the Angels, five. Taylor Trammell, a friend of the podcast, six with the Reds. Alex Verdugo of the Dodgers, at least for now, with the Dodgers, number seven. Christian Pache, number eight with the Braves. Jesus Sanchez, number nine with the Rays. And Luis Robert, number 10 with the White Sox um Jonathan I'll start with you on this one uh this is the overall top 10 outfielders who's
1: the best defensive outfielder in the group Christian Pache that that's an easy one uh, I mean Robles is pretty close I agree with you but Robles is, is is pretty close yeah no it's close uh, there, there's some really good ones but uh I just wrote the like all defense team you know and it, it certainly wasn't an exhaustive uh questionnaire uh feedback getting uh but Pache, uh, you know, Robles was the, our, our top defensive prospect a year ago. I think Pache, because he was able to show off in the folly just how good he is. Um, uh, I would love to, you know, not that there's a way to really measure it, but the two of them together, they're both really good. And what what makes them stand out, what makes Pache stand out, is that it's um, center field ability, like plus-plus range, great speed, unbelievable instincts. He makes it look easy. And then he's got like a right fielder's arm, like an absolute hose of an arm. So it's the combination of those two things. And, and Robles is similar. You know, often you have a guy who, Oh yeah, he can really go get it in center field and great range, but the arm is just okay. Um, you know, on this list, you have guys who can, can do it all. And that includes Joe Adele too, by the way, who can really go get the ball and, in center and has a plus arm, uh, maybe not quite as good of an arm, but to have guys who, who can field and run and throw like that? Uh, you don't you don't see that all that often. Thinking of an outfield
2: in Atlanta with Acuna and Ciarte and Pache, it's uh, <laughs> not a lot is going to fall if that comes together. Maybe in twenty twenty, um, if those guys are all still there. Uh, from a pure bat standpoint, Jim, you look at this list. There's the defense. Um, there's power. Is, is Kirilov the best overall bat, though? Because I know you guys bring him up all the time in overall prospect conversations.
0: See, you're playing into what I said, what I, a point I made on Twitter. Kirilov's really, really good. <laughs> I think Eloy Jimenez, because Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is so good that Eloy Jimenez is underappreciated. We've got Eloy Jimenez as a 65-hit, 70-power so he's the best bat on this list. You know, Karoloff, we have is a 65 hit, 55 power. But, I mean, Eloy, since he got the full season ball at what I think was age 19 um, – Has just destroyed the minors everywhere he's gone. Um, You know he battled some injuries last year. He still put up you know a 960 OPS in Double A and Triple A as a 21 year old. He hit career high 22 home runs even though he had played only 108 games. Um, You know Kirilov I think is going to be like the next big thing once Vlad and Eloy graduate this year. In terms of Alex might be the best hitting prospect in the minor leagues at any position at that point. The best all around hitting prospect. But um, I think Eloy Jimenez, Vlad Guerrero Jr. just cast such a large shadow uh, that, that Eloy Jimenez gets overlooked a
2: little bit. All right, so those are the the rest of the top 10 prospects list. It all leads up, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, to the Top 100 show. It's coming up on MLB Network on Saturday night, 8 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, definitely tune in and watch it. Jonathan, um, in the past, Twitter has been a big part of this as well. Uh, can Should people get on Twitter also and try to follow some of these prospects? Well, of course.
1: Um Thank you for the, for the lob there. Uh, yeah. As, as always, we were eliciting some of the top prospects to, to get involved, uh, use the hashtag, uh, you know, hashtag top 100 prospects, pretty straightforward. A number of the players will be on there uh, talking up the list, talking about other guys on the list, interacting with fans. So, uh, it, it ends up adding a, an extra element to it. Excellent. So tune into
2: that. I'm sure they'll be hyping up their teammates as well as I think that becomes part of this is, is giving some love to teammates along the way as far as the list goes. Jim, are you going to make it to New York for the show?
0: Probably not. Um, we'll see. I'll probably still be at O'Hare when um, people start listening to this podcast because <laughs> not only have I had my flight moved. My, my, my Newark flight got canceled. So now I'm flying to LaGuardia, which is much less convenient for going to Secaucus. While we've been podcasting, that departure has already been pushed back an hour. So um, I, I guess the, we'll know the outcome, I guess, before anybody hears this. I, I, we will see if I make it to, to Secaucus tonight, but I am becoming gr- uh, more skeptical as, uh, as I continue to get email updates from American Airlines.
2: All right. Our fingers are crossed. I'm sure we'll get you here at some point. You'll be a big part of the show. All right. That'll do it for this edition of the pipeline podcast for Jim and Jonathan. I'm Tim McMaster. Thank you so much for tuning in.